0: But a question that involves all of us, that's important for all of us, is this question. Why should we take time each summer to look at the Psalms? Or why are the Psalms important? You see, the Psalms have lots of value. They have value because they are part of the Holy Spirit-inspired text of Scripture. All Scripture, all of it, is God-breathed and is beneficial, is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, that men and women of God might be competent, might be fully equipped for every good work, and that includes the Psalms. The Psalms are important because they're Holy Spirit inspired. The Psalms are also important because the Psalms reveal the character of God. The Psalms have a way of revealing who God is and what he is like as he interacts with the different Psalmists. The Psalms are also valuable because they point towards the need for a Messiah. They point towards the longing that humanity has to be rescued by the anointed one of God. But the Psalms are also important, and I would argue essential, for us as Christians because the Psalms, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, demonstrate what it looks like to walk by faith through all the various seasons or dimensions of the human experience. We go through different seasons of life. We go through different experiences in life. In fact, of the several hundred of us who are here today, we come having had different kinds of weeks and different kinds of years and different kinds of lives. And the psalmists speak out of those various kinds of experiences. And these psalms show us what it looks like to live by faith when we suffer, or when we're hated, or when we're misunderstood, or when God seems far away. The Psalms show us what it looks like to live by faith when we're tired, or when we feel all alone, or when we sin against God. And so we're going to see, as we work our way through the Psalms this summer, we're going to see how God's character and how his purposes are unchanging, and how God's character and God's purposes are ultimately for our good, even when those things around us look bad which is why we're spending time in the Psalms, because there is something for all of us here, regardless of where you are at in life right now. The Psalms show us how to live by faith through every experience. So with that as kind of our setup to our summer sermons in the Psalms, we're going to specifically this morning look at Psalm 28 which is what Daniel read for us. If you look at Psalm 28 in your own Bible you can see that the superscript says that this is a psalm of David. So David was perhaps the most famous king in all of Israel. He reigned from 1010 BC to 970 BC. He was A king, not only an earthly king of Israel, but he was also a king whom God used as a pattern of sorts, as kind of a foreshadowing of sorts of what the Messiah would look like, what the Messiah would be like. And David said it was a man after God's own heart. And God promised that in later days he would raise up a Messiah, he would raise up a new king who would be like David in many ways. He would be David-esque. And so when we read about David and we see the life of David and we hear what David writes and what he prays, there, there are hints, there are smells, there are tinges of the Messiah who would be to come. And yet David was flawed. David was imperfect. David failed at times. So even those who loved David and even those who recognized that David was a good king in Israel recognized that he was not ultimately perfect. He was not ultimately the deliverer. He did not ultimately establish a kingdom that could never be shaken. And it left them longing for more. Kind of like when you order appetizers and they bring out a small plate with just a few little appetizers on it and you you eat and you, you like It maybe takes away some of the hunger pains a little bit, but you're longing for more. You're, you're, you're more hungry now for the meal to come because you've gotten the smells and just a little taste of what is to come. And that was essentially, in God's kingdom narrative, the work that David served was to provide just a little hint of what was to come in the Messiah. But for the people in David's day... The the Messiah and the longing for the Messiah was something that was still distant. It was something still in the future. In fact, for David, it was something that would not happen yet for another thousand years or so. And so it's important for us to remember when we read the Psalms, there is a longing and anticipation for the coming Messiah. But now when we read the Psalms in 2022, we read knowing that the Messiah has come. That the Messiah has lived without sin. That the Messiah has died in the place of all who sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That the Messiah has been raised from the dead. That the Messiah is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that the Messiah will return to establish his kingdom in all of its fullness. And so there are some differences. There are some similarities when we read the Psalms. But there are also some differences that we need to apply, different lenses we need to look through. Because we are not waiting in eager anticipation for the arrival of the Messiah. We are waiting with eager anticipation for the return of the Messiah. And this brings us now to Psalm 28, this Psalm of David. And you can see in this Psalm, if you were paying attention as it was read for us, that David is in trouble. We aren't told what the trouble is, but you can tell from his words that something is desperately wrong. Verse 1, he's crying out to the Lord. Verse 2, hear the pleas that I give for mercy. I cry to you for help. Verse 3, do not drag me off. David is in trouble. We're not sure what that is. Not exactly sure what's going on. We're not told, so it's not important for us to know but we see in verses 1 and 2 that he cries out to the Lord for help. And then in verses 3 through 5, he prays that the Lord would bring justice to his enemies. And then in verses 6 or 7 or 6 through 8, he praises God. He calls the people who would read and the rest of Israel who's listening in to praise God. And then in verse 9, It's both really a call and 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 a word of gratitude for praise to God, but it's also pointing us ahead to a shepherd who will come and who has come to shepherd his people. And so that's going to be our rough outline this morning as we make our way through this text. There'll be three main points. None of them will be on the screen, so you all just have to listen and pay close attention and write it down. Three main points. The first is hear me, the second is judge them, and the third is bless God. Hear me, judge them, and bless God. And if you're thinking that sounds really kind of polished and slickly packaged and a little more polished than you used to with me, it's because I borrowed those terms from Jim Hamilton's excellent commentary on the Psalms. Hear me, judge them, bless God. Let's begin with the first, hear me. Notice David's initial reaction to whatever it is that is causing him to suffer. His reaction is to pray to God, and his prayer is essentially this. Hear me, listen to me. Verse one, to you, O Lord, or to you, Yahweh, I call, my rock, do not be deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. And David goes directly to the Lord with his need. He doesn't assume that God will be angry because of his suffering. He doesn't assume that God is too preoccupied, too busy, too concerned with other things to actually care for what's going on. In fact, David doesn't even attempt to fix this problem on his own. Like, okay, if I can just get some books checked out from the library on this, if I can just download, if I can do some internet research, I can figure out what it is that's going on, I can get wisdom from other people on the best way to solve this problem. No, David first and immediately goes to the Lord. In fact, he sings this song, which is essentially a prayer to the Lord. For 2,000 years, Christians have been singing this. In fact, the Psalms... The book of Psalms, the Psalter, is the church's hymn book, so to speak, for 2,000 years. So I grew up in a church, maybe you did as well, that had hymn books. <clears throat> and behind every seat, there was, there was a hymn book. It was a book of three or four or five hundred songs that the church would sing. And usually any given church, the churches I grew up in only maybe sang 30 or 40 of those. There's all kinds of songs. And one of my favorite memories about singing for the church were on Sunday nights, We would have requests oftentimes, and the song leader would say, okay, who has a request? And you would have, you know, great Aunt Margaret who would always say, 311, good old 311, you know, and we would sing good old 311. You know, everyone kind of had their favorites, and you knew, Clarence raised his hand, you know, you knew what was coming, great is thy faithfulness. (laughs) But it was glorious. And for 2,000 years, the Psalms have functioned like that. It's been the church's Hymn book, which is more than just a a historical note, it's also a theological note. Because the Psalms are inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Psalms have a way of giving voice to the longings of our heart. There have likely been moments in your life where you have been maybe so racked with turmoil or pain or suffering or confusion or hurt or uncertainty that when you try to come before the Lord in prayer, you have no idea what to say. And for many of us, we have opened the book of Psalms and as we've meditated on the Psalms and read through them and thought through them, we've We've found comfort. We have found words that give voice to our longings or our needs or sometimes even our groanings that are too deep for us on our own to come up with words for. We read one of the Psalms and we think, that's exactly how I feel. Which is why the Psalms are so valuable not only to sing but also to pray. Because the Psalms are prayers. Psalms even today can express our feelings to God and remind us of who God is and remind us of our hope in Him. And this is exactly what David does. He goes to the Lord and he makes it clear up front that this is, this is not part of his overall plan to find a solution for his problem. This is not just a part of what he hopes will be a fix to his problem. No. David really throws himself entirely on the mercy of the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. He prays, do not be deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. What David is saying is, if you don't listen to me, Lord, if you don't respond to me, Yahweh, I am doomed. I'm finished. I'm done for it. David is not, as we are so often tempted to do, going to the Lord as part of the plan, like I'm going to pray and I'm going to do this and this and this. David is going to the Lord with his anguish, with his hurt, with his suffering, pleading with the Lord to listen to him, knowing that without the Lord, he can do all kinds of other things. He can act in all sorts of wise ways, but without the Presence and the help of the Lord, he's finished. He throws himself on the kindness and the mercy of the Lord. David is not trusting in the Lord and trusting in his intellect or his experience or his counselors. He's trusting fundamentally and foundationally in Yahweh. And he's not looking for a band-aid fix. Or a quick fix. He's longing for thorough help, and so he approaches his his God as a father approaches his child. Just notice in verse 2. David says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. The image we should have as we think about that should be like a father or like a child who is afraid and who turns to find where their father is or their mother is and immediately puts up their arms. You've probably seen that before. You've probably experienced that before. You go to someone's home. They have a dog maybe and it's a child who's not familiar with dogs or doesn't like dogs. What do they immediately do? They see the dog. They turn around. They put up their arms. Someone picked me up. Someone rescue me from this situation. I don't know what to do. I can't fix myself. This is exactly what David is doing hear the voice of my pleas when I cry, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. David is saying, I I totally depend on you. There's a complete lack of pretense here. David is not beseeching the most holy Father on behalf of an urgent concern and request. No, he's crying out to the Lord for help. Like, when was the last time you cried out to the Lord for help. I'm not talking about bringing a list of concerns. When was the last time you were so broken or so afraid or so hurt or so confused that all you could do was to symbolically put up your hands to God and just cry to Him? And your prayer didn't come out eloquent. It didn't come out loquacious. It came out in the form of tears. God, I need help. I, I don't know what to do. Maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe this morning you came in and there, there's physical suffering going on in your life. And maybe the doctors don't have an answer and maybe you're not sure what tomorrow holds. Maybe everything that has been, you've, you've tried physically, medically, hasn't fixed it, hasn't helped. And you've prayed that the Lord would take it away. You've prayed that the Lord would be would heal it and he has not. And you come before him with a cry, Lord, I, I don't know what to do to help. I don't know how. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's spiritual. But this morning, you, you've you come and you're in that place where you, you realize I'm here and I have a smile on and I look you know, somewhat groomed and clean, but inside, I'm a wreck. That's okay. Our God calls to us and invites us to come to him and to cry out to him. And he cares and he hears and he doesn't grade us on our oratory. He doesn't grade us on how many theological words we use or how well we can explain to him what we feel. You know why? Because he knows what we need and what we experience and what we feel before we even ask him. And even when we don't know how to communicate. So we can lift our hands to our good father as David did. Asking for help, crying out to him. But David is not done. Psalm 28 is not over. David not only cries out for help, help me, but he also has a request here. His request is judge them. Verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. David prays to God in his prayers. Essentially, God judge them, which may seem like an odd thing, To pray. In fact, we probably ought to ask ourselves today, should we pray prayers like this? Prayers that are imprecatory. Imprecatory prayers are simply prayers that ask God to bring punishment or judgment or curses on God's enemy. And since Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, is this how we should pray for them? Is this what he had in mind? God, judge them. God, wipe them out. God, destroy them. Or should we pray prayers like this? Well, we should pray for our enemies. David prays for the enemies of God here. And we should pray for the enemies of God. We should pray first that the Holy Spirit would transform them through the gospel. We should pray that God would would change them, would transform them, would renew them. And lest we think that there are those who are too far from the Lord, too far out of his reach for him to actually transform their lives, I would just present to you as exhibit A, the Apostle Paul, who was formerly known as Saul. In fact, this week, this past weekend, I had the privilege of uh, speaking at an elder conference in Virginia for a friend's church and then preaching there on Sunday. He asked me to preach Acts chapter 9 on Saul's conversion. And one of the things that always amazes me every time I read back over and study over the way the Lord saved Saul was that Saul was a, a terrorist. Like the guy systematically went from city to city, house to house, looking for Christians, dragging them out, putting them in prison, and sometimes putting them to death. If there was someone who had been voted least likely to become a Christian in the first century church, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Everyone would have voted. If we, like we're going to vote, we're in the first century, we're going to vote. Everyone would have said, Paul, Paul, right down the list. And yet, miraculously, by the grace and the mercy of God, God transforms the life of Saul. Which means we ought to regularly be praying even for those whom we think are furthest away from the Lord. Even those who right now are the enemies of God. Those who are working to, to counteract or to overthrow or to... To push against the, the righteousness and the goodness and the justice of God. And we should pray that the Holy Spirit transforms them through the gospel. But secondly, when thinking about how we should pray for the enemies of God, we should pray for justice. We should pray for an end to wickedness and an end to all of that which is not in accord with the Word of God. We can and should pray that God's justice would prevail, that God's ways would prevail, that God's righteousness would prevail in our world, and that those who stand against the things and the ways of God would be stopped, that it would be ended. Just one popular example of this is the way we pray for an end of abortion in our country, We know on the authority of God's word about the sanctity of life, the value of every human life, even the unborn. And so we pray that God would stop injustice and God would stop unrighteousness and God would stop a system and those who support a system that is contrary to the word and the plan and the purposes of God. Is that an imprecatory prayer? It is in a way. We're praying for justice. We're praying for God to stop those who pursue and promote and push evil. Praying at the very same time that God would not simply stop the evil, but that God would transform their hearts. Even this last couple of weeks, as our elders had some discussion about things that are going on and broader evangelical culture in our country today with abuse that's being brought to light at the hands of church leaders. and It is heartbreaking and it is infuriating. One of our elders so rightly brought up, we should not only pray for the victims and we should not only pray for an end to this wickedness, but we should also pray for those who are wicked and those who are perpetrating and have perpetrated this, that God would bring them to repentance and godly sorrow. And so we pray in that way. We pray that the justice of God would would roll down. And David here prays, reminding the Lord, so to speak, in verse 3, that I am not one of those who are wicked. Verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. David is saying, remember me, even as I cry to you, I'm not one of those evildoers I'm not one of those who's standing against you. Don't forget me. And David can pray this way knowing that in the end, God will right every wrong. That God will rule and reign in justice and in righteousness. Which then leads us to our third point. David's third Foci in this psalm, which is bless God. It's really a call for the people of God to bless God. It's a call to doxology. It's a call to praise God. It's a call to worship. Just like every Sunday morning we begin our time together reading the word of God, using the word of God to call the people of God to the worship of God by the power of the spirit of God. This is what David is doing. David is calling for the people to bless God. Look at verse 6. Blessed be the Lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. If you're looking for a reason to bless the Lord this morning, David gives us several just in these few verses here. David admonishes us to bless God, to worship God, to praise God first because he hears the cries of his people. Look at verse 6 again. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed between David's prayer in verses 1 and 2 for mercy and David's prayer in verse 6, or his thankful prayer that the Lord has given him mercy, that the Lord has heard his prayer. So David prays, Lord, hear my prayers. And now in verse 6, David says, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to bless the Lord because he's heard my prayers. We don't know how much time elapsed, but it's likely about seven seconds, which means More than likely, David has not seen a discernible external change in his circumstances. It's not as though David prays, God, hear my cry to you, have mercy on me and listen. And then David hears a thundering voice, yes, David. Or there's all of a sudden a change in whatever it is that's causing him suffering or whatever hardship he's enduring. But likely... His external circumstances have not changed at all. And yet, David is able to pray God, I bless you and praise you because you have heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Like, how can David pray that? David can pray that on the authority of the character of God and on the authority of the promises of God. David has walked. With the Lord. David has seen that God has been faithful and true to his promises over and over and over again. And on the authority of God's character and his promises, David now can pray God, I bless you and praise you because you have heard my prayer, you have heard my cry, even though I may not see an answer out in front of me, even though my circumstances have not appeared to change. Friends, this is is not a spiritual superpower only available to platinum-level Christians. This is the confidence that every child of God can walk in knowing that God is faithful and just. That God is unchanging. That God is a promise-keeping God. That he is faithful to his own. We can be confident that we can come before him knowing that he hears us. We can also be confident to bless the Lord, David tells us, because God is our strength and the shield of his people. Verse 7 He is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. We can praise God because he is our shield, he is our help, he is our strength, he's our protector. We find comfort and security and peace in the fact that he will guard us as his own, that according to Ephesians 1, he has sealed his own until we ultimately receive our eternal inheritance in glory one day. That nothing can separate us from the love of God, height, depth, anything else in all creation. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are called to bless God because he is our strength. He is our shield. It does not mean we will not suffer. It does not mean we will not undergo times of crisis and trial. But it means that even in those moments, he will guard and he will shield us as is necessary that we may be preserved in the faith. That we may even grow in times of suffering. Also notice David says, we should bless the Lord because he is the help in verse 7, but also the joy. The joy of his people. Verse 7, my heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Again, David is the same one who says, Here, my heart exalts. He's the same one who said in verses one and two, hear me, hear my cry for mercy. If you don't listen to me, I am I'm done for. And yet he is able to draw up the rich nutrients of joy even in the midst of crisis and suffering and trial because the Lord is his help and the Lord is his strength. Maybe you have known Christians like that in this fellowship or in other churches who have maybe walked with the Lord for a long time and they've experienced adversity and crisis and trial and yet they have learned over the years to so rely and so trust in the character and the goodness of God and trust in the authority of his word that when they face suffering, yes, they mourn and yes, they grieve and yes, they lament all things that Christians can and should do. But in all of it, there, there is a deep-seated joy that seems undimmed by the sufferings of their life. That's what David is experiencing here. Same David who would write, The joy of the Lord is my strength. Finally, David teaches us that we should bless the Lord. He says, Because the Lord is the salvation of his people. Get verses eight and nine. The Lord is the strength of his people, he is the saving refuge of his anointed. So the anointed was the king, it was King David, and David is thanking the Lord that the Lord is the refuge of King David. He's saying, thank you God for being my refuge, for being my help, even in the midst of my suffering, even in the midst of my crisis, I can have joy and I know that you hear me and I can praise you because you are my shield and you are my strength and you are my refuge. But we know that ultimately, David was not perfect. In fact, ultimately, as I said at the beginning, David was used as a a pattern, as a foreshadow, as an appetizer of the anointed, the anointed, capital T, capital A, that was to come and now has come, Jesus Christ. And so just as David is able to say, God, I thank you because you are the saving refuge of your anointed, of me, We now who live on the other side of Jesus' arrival and his death and his resurrection can rightly say that we can praise God because he is the saving refuge of his own people through his anointed Jesus Christ in whom we have life, in whom we have forgiveness of our sins. In fact, this theme is continued as David closes out in verse 9 with this prayer. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Do you remember what David was before he was a king? He was a shepherd. And yet David prays to God, asking God, asking Yahweh to shepherd his people. Even David, with all of his wealth of experience as a shepherd, was not capable on his own to shepherd the people of God. And so he prays that Yahweh would shepherd his people. Tragically, so many throughout the history of Israel did not faithfully serve as spiritual leaders in Israel. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 34... God has very strong, indicting words against the priests and the spiritual leaders in Israel. Because not only were they failing to lead the people spiritually, but they were abusing the people. They were abusing their power. They were taking advantage of the people. Using their authority for their own selfish, sinful means at the people's expense. And God comes through the words of Ezekiel in chapter 34 with very harsh criticisms for his spiritual leaders who were abusing their power and abusing their authority and not caring for the flock. And at the end of Ezekiel chapter 34, God gives this glorious promise that because these people did not rightly shepherd his own, he would come and he would shepherd his own people through his anointed, that he would send one who would rightly and justly and faithfully shepherd his own. And then Jesus arrives on the scene As the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired hand does not lay down his life for the sheep. A hired hand may pretend to be a shepherd, may act like a shepherd, may even look like a shepherd, but you know how you know he's not a shepherd? is because when challenges come and when the wolves come, he runs away and does not protect the flock. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and I lay down my life for the sheep and the sheep, my sheep, hear my voice and they know my voice and they follow me. God provided his own shepherd through his own son, Jesus Christ, who came to care for and to love and to lead and ultimately to die for his own. Jesus sets the stage for that when at the very beginning of his ministry he goes into the synagogue and he opens up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." It's why later in John chapter 6, Jesus would say, I have come that I may save all whom the Father gives to me and not lose one of them. Jesus is the great shepherd. And so we of all people have reason to bless God today. Because God has provided the shepherd. God answered David's prayer here in verse 9. Oh, save your people, and God has through Jesus Christ. For all who believe, all who turn away from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead are saved. And God has blessed us as his own heritage and he has shepherded us and is shepherding us through Jesus Christ and he will carry us Until that glorious day when Jesus Christ returns and we see him face to face and we live with him forevermore. We should rightly be reminded of these truths. We should rightly meditate on the glorious and victorious work of Jesus Christ.